Hi everybody, welcome to the Heart Podcast. Today we're talking all about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We have a discussion with Dr. Lynn Williams, who is a world expert on that condition and works at Royal Papworth Hospital just around the corner from me in Cambridge. We talk all about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in terms of genetic testing, diagnosis, treatments, prognosis, and when a general cardiologist should refer to a specialist in this disease. I hope you enjoy the show. Maybe we can start, Lynn, by asking you to introduce yourself for the heart audience, what you do and, and where you work. Morning, everyone. I'm Lynn Williams. I'm one of the consultant cardiologists at Royal Papworth Hospital, and I head up the Inherited Cardiomyopathy Service here. So I specialize in all things heart muscle. The bulk of my work is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but I also see patients with amyloid and other cardiomyopathies. Um, and I also specialize in advanced imaging, predominantly echocardiography. And thank you so much, Dr. Williams, for joining us. Um, I wanted to get you on because I know you're a local and uh, national specialist in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the uh, an overview of HCM, the incidence of the disease, the pathology of the disease, that kind of thing? Sure. So essentially, it's one of the most common hereditary heart conditions that we see. Um, and there are actually hundreds of thousands of patients affected by this, even within the UK. Now, what we know about how common the disease is, is, is derived really from two sources. So if we think back to some of the previous studies using echocardiographic screening of general populations, then the prevalence of, of hokum is around one in 500. And this is generally what we're all taught at medical school and during cardiology training. But I think we've now moved into the realm of genetic testing. And what we know from genetic studies of the Framingham Heart Study and the Jackson Heart Study is that actually probably around one in 200 people carry a potentially pathogenic mutation for HCM. So essentially, what we're coming to realize is that people out there with a predisposition to hokum is probably around one in 200 of the population, which means that as you know, all cardiologists are going to see this disease in their routine practice. In terms of the pathology, essentially the hallmark of the disease is, is unexplained left ventricular hypertrophy, and that's usually in association with a non-dilated left ventricle. And importantly, we always have to think about other conditions which might explain uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. So it's important to think about things like blood pressure, aortic valve disease. So on the gross anatomy is that of left ventricular hypertrophy. And in some patients, that can involve the right ventricle as well. But on a microscopic level, if we look at the heart muscle, there's myocyte disarray there's fibrosis or scarring within the myocardium. And there's also abnormalities of the coronary microvasculature, which predisposes these patients to microvascular angina and diastolic dysfunction. And what's actually happening at a cellular level? Do we know? Uh, so, we, so we know a few things at a cellular level. There are um, electrical abnormalities in terms of delayed action potentials. There's abnormalities of calcium handling, which contributes to the diastolic dysfunction. Uh, there's, you know, there's also problems with myocardial energetics. There's been some interesting work looking at um, 
a magnetic resonance spectroscopy showing an energy deficiency in the heart. So, so there are a lot of things going on at, at the cellular level which contribute to the pathophysiology of the disease. And a lot of these are potential targets of interest for developing new treatments. And you mentioned that there are a variety of underlying genetic disorders or genetic abnormalities, shall we say, that can lead to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And presumably this explains why patients present at different ages in life, some people in middle age, some people earlier. Yeah, so essentially they're, you know, they're our understanding, traditional understanding of the genetics of, of HOCOM is that it's an autosomal dominant, dominant disease, that most of the mutations are in the sarcomeric uh, proteins, so in the genes encoding the sarcomeric proteins. And, um, you know, initially we thought that there were certain genotype, phenotype correlations. So the, the initial work suggested that certain genes might dictate how your clinical presentation, your age of presentation, um, and, and the severity of the disease would present. But I think we're starting to understand that, that that's not really the case. A lot of those studies were done within families uh, in a small number of probands. And what we know now is that actually... Uh, a lot of the genes will present at any age from childhood to, to a fairly advanced age. And what we're also understanding in the realm of genetic testing is that some people don't actually express the disease or the phenotype. So some people are carriers um, and there is this concept of incomplete penetrance. So you may have the gene, but you may not necessarily go on to show the phenotype. And we certainly see within families, I mean, I, I look after several families where I look after, you know, seven or eight family members, and the disease is very different within the family, even in patients with the same gene mutation. And I think a lot of that is epigenetics, so other genes that we carry interacting with the mutation, but also our environment, you know, blood pressure, exercise, activity, um, so, so it's a very interesting disease and a very variable disease. Mm. And, and while we're talking about genetics, we'll, we'll jump ahead in the in the list of questions that I've got here, if sure. that's okay. So yeah, you, men you mentioned autosomal dominant, but presumably there are patients with a new mutation who don't have any family history that you, you see. Absolutely, yes. So, you know, there are certainly very frequent cases where even with exploring the family tree and performing genetic testing that that um, that we only identify one individual with the gene. So yes, as we're all prone to to new somatic mutations, that can happen as well in the genes in, uh, encoding the sarcomere proteins. And Lynn, can you tell us some some common symptoms that patients uh, will tend to present to either GP or general cardiologist with? Yeah, so in terms of how patients come to our attention, it's really a number of ways. If we think about patients who have cardiac symptoms, then by far the most common symptoms are going to be shortness of breath on exertion, exertional chest pain, sometimes atypical chest pain. So patients with hokum can certainly have atypical pains at rest. Patients may uh, describe dizziness on exertion or unexplained fainting spells. And increasingly, we're actually seeing a number of patients presenting at first diagnosis with TIA or stroke. Really? And, and what's, yeah. the, what's thought to be the origin of the TIA? Is it a, a true TIA or is it, is it something that's mimicked by having hokum? 
No, it's usually an embolic phenomenon. So atrial fibrillation is incredibly common in patients with, with HOCAM compared with the general population. And over, over their lifetime, probably about one in five patients will develop atrial fibrillation. And importantly, the CHADS-VASC score is not particularly accurate in, in the HOCAM population. So if we see even one episode of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, we usually advocate anticoagulation lifelong. Okay. Interesting stuff. Um, and the other mechanism for stroke is patients who have um, hypertrophy that predominantly affects the mid cavity of the left ventricle or the apex. One of the complications is that they can actually infarct the apex and develop an aneurysm. Okay. And then have thrombus in the aneurysm. So the, the TIA strokes are often embolic events. And you mentioned the, the apex being involved there. I've seen some patients who've been described as having apical hokum. Yes. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Is that just a, a form fruit of, of the of the standard disease, or is that is that a different entity completely? So, in terms of different entity, the genetics is slightly different in in the apical cohort. So, when we talk about apical HCM, we're you know the classic appearance of HCM is hypertrophy involving the ventricular septum and causing obstruction to blood flow out of the outflow tract. But in some patients, the hypertrophy is predominantly down at the mid cavity or at the apex. And they often have very, very striking ECG abnormalities with mm. giant T-wave inversion. Um, when we do genetic testing, we find the hit rate of finding a pathogenic gene mutation is much lower in the apical cohort. So we still do find the same mutations that we would see in other uh, sort of anatomic variants of HCM, but we see it at a much lower frequency. So uh, we did some work when I was a, a fellow in Toronto, and we found that we only identified a pathogenic mutation in about 10 to 11% of patients with apical hokum, whereas in other populations, we would find mutations in 30, 40, 50%. Uh, so you know, is there a gene that we don't know about that causes uh, predilection for apical hypertrophy? I think that's something that we're still understanding as we now offer genetic testing more routinely. And it may be some, you know, it may be something that we know more about. Historically, it was always felt to be the benign variant of HCM. So if you had apical hypertrophy, you, you were going to have a milder clinical course. But we now know that that's not the case and that these patients can get atrial fibrillation. They can get ventricular tachycardia, particularly if they develop an apical aneurysm. And they can be at risk of stroke if they develop thrombus in an aneurysm. And how do you make the diagnosis, Lynn? Are there other criteria that people need to know? Yes, yeah, so essentially the diagnosis, uh, the approach to diagnosis is very much twofold and it's ECG and imaging are the mainstay. Um, ECG often gives you a clue to, to an underlying abnormality. And again, a lot of patients come through our acute coronary syndrome pathway with chest pain, with you know ECG abnormalities who are found to have normal coronaries and and who go on to be diagnosed with HCM. But classically on ECG, you'll see left ventricular hypertrophy by voltage criteria. You'll see ST segment change, T-wave inversion. You can see a pseudo-infarct pattern with Q-waves. Uh, and then the, really the mainstay is first line imaging is transthoracic echo. 
And essentially, the, you are trying to identify left ventricular hypertrophy and the absolute wall thickness of the heart muscle, the pattern of hypertrophy. Is it septal? Is it apical? Does it involve the right heart? Um, and, and CMR, I would say CMR is very complementary from an imaging perspective, one for defining the degree of left ventricular hypertrophy, but it has the added benefit of, of allowing you to look for myocardial fibrosis with late gadolinium enhancement, which is very important as well. And imaging can sometimes give you a clue. Imaging and ECG can sometimes flag up the potential that you're dealing not with sarcomeric hokum, but with a phenocopy or a mimic, such as amyloid or Fabry's disease. Okay, and we'll talk about CMR in a in a little bit in terms of mm -hmm. prognostication. But do you, your approach to genetics in somebody with, let's say, a barn door uh, transthoracic echo, significant hypertrophy of the, the basal septum, Mm -hmm. where the diagnosis is in no doubt when you look at the pictures. How do you approach genetic testing in those patients? And how would you do it in somebody with, say, query hokum, query athletic heart? Um, yep. These are situations I think that general cardiologists face a lot. So my feeling is that genetic testing is most useful when you are dealing with a definitive phenotype. So okay. trying to use genetic testing to arbitrate a diagnosis between hypertension and hokum or athlete's heart and hokum, you, your hit rate's going to be much lower. So there are there are several models from the Mayo Clinic from Toronto looking at factors which increase your pretest probability of identifying a pathogenic mutation. And those are all centered around both a definite phenotype and a family history. I have to say, I, I think genetic testing is very useful. We offer it to mo it, most, if not all, of our patients. I think it has important benefits for the family. So if you can identify a gene mutation in, in the proband, in the individual diagnosed with HOCAM, then you can offer cascade testing to family members. And for those who don't have the gene, they can be reassured and released from ongoing surveillance. For those who do have the gene, you can then monitor and institute treatment as, as necessary. I think genetic testing is also very useful if there is any suspicion that you're dealing with a mimic or a phenocopy. Um, and we, we routinely on our gene panels have, have the gene for Fabry's disease and for Danon's disease. So, you know, while often clinically we have a suspicion, we do from time to time have patients where... We thought this was barn door hokum, particularly female patients, and they come back with a mutation in for Fabry's, wow. which then changes the management and changes the family screening quite dramatically. So, you know, there there are there are times where we have thought it's barn door hokum. We've sent someone for myectomy, and the myectomy muscle specimen shows features consistent with a storage disorder. So, okay, I think wow. genetic testing is very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, it... you know, if while single genes might not help you prognosticate the patient, I think there is a, a growing body of evidence that if you carry a double gene mutation or a compound mutation, that you are potentially at higher risk of arrhythmia, of heart failure um, and a worse outcome. So those are patients you may wish to monitor more closely. And let's talk a little bit about prognostication of a patient. What, what's your general approach to that? 
So generally, I think risks, I mean, the, the most feared complication that we're prognosticating for is sudden cardiac death. And I think with current management, we, we have made significant inroads into reducing sudden deaths. And if you look at the, um, the mortality trends in patients with Hokum, we've moved away from sudden death being the major cause of death to now actually heart failure and atrial fibrillation stroke contributing significantly to morbidity and mortality. So certainly, you know, with risk stratification, we've made inroads. The thing to say is that, you know, for the vast majority of patients, they're going to have a relatively uh, benign course. There's mm. only the minority who are at increased risk of these complications. And we tend to do risk stratification at the point of diagnosis, but it is an, it, it's not a one-off assessment. It needs to be reassessed every, every year or two. Okay. And it really involves, you know, family history, clinical symptoms, imaging features. There are markers of high risk. So a family history of sudden death in a, in a young relative uh, from hokum, unexplained syncope, very significant left ventricular hypertrophy, high left outflow, outflow tract gradients, arrhythmia run Holter monitoring, all of these will, will help you to decide who is at higher risk of, of a dangerous ventricular arrhythmia versus lower risk. There are two different ways of, of assessing this. Um, the American, the North American guidelines from 2011 look at individual risk factors that you then tally up. Um, and obviously for us in Europe, we have the ESC risk calculator, which is an online calculator that's available to everyone. And essentially you, you plug into the calculator parameters from your echo or your MRI from the clinical history. And it comes out with a, with a recommendation as to whether your patient is high risk and warrants consideration of an ICD or whether they're low risk. I think the difficult patients are the gray zone, the intermediate risk. Mm. Um, and then we start to think about what are other potential modifiers of risk. So I find MRI very useful for this, the, the, the fibrosis burden on MRI. I think about double gene mutations, apical aneurysms, other things that might start to push you higher up in the risk category. Yeah, the yeah. thing to say is it always needs to be a joint um, decision between the patient and the clinician. Patients need to understand the, the benefits of an ICD versus the complications of lifetime ICD therapy. And also everyone judges their, their individual risk differently. Some people, you know, what, what is an, un, an acceptable level of risk to one person is, is unacceptable to another. So it, it's really not as simple as plugging numbers into a calculator, but also having a very frank and open discussion with the patient, um, understanding how the diagnosis has affected their, their psychological well-being, and then coming to a joint decision. And you mentioned therapies there. Are there any medical therapies, before we get on to talk about things like myomectomy, are there any medical therapies that have actually been shown to reduce either symptoms or to improve uh, lifespan, reduce mortality? So in terms of um, the mainstay of treatment, up until recently, we've really been left with very few medical treatment options for, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And, and they're generally beta blockers or the mainstay of treatment and the first line treatment in, in anyone who can 
tolerate them or doesn't have a contraindication for some patients, we will use a calcium channel blocker as an alternative. Okay. But generally, for most people, symptoms are related to left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and you can control outflow tract gradients very well in the majority of patients with beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Uh, if we need a second line agent, we can use a drug like disapyramide, which yes, it is a, an antiarrhythmic drug, but it's a potent negative inotrope. And so that's its mechanism of benefit on outflow tract obstruction. I always wondered about that, whether it was whether you were using an old school <laughs> arrhythmic to try and suppress a, uh, you know, VEs or something. But OK, so no, it's actually, you're actually no. using it to reduce the gradient. Interesting. Yeah. So you're using it not for its antiarrhythmic benefit, but for its negative inotropic benefit. Um, and it's very effective. You know, it does have side effects in some patients. You do have to be um, aware of the potential to cause QT prolongation, but mm. it is a very good second line agent, either in addition with a beta blocker or a calcium blocker. You shouldn't use it on its own okay. because if patients get AF, it can accelerate AV conduction. So it does need to be used with a beta blocker or with a calcium channel blocker, but it is a very good, uh, very good drug. Um, and again, in, in, a significant number of patients will will render their symptoms much improved and reduce their outflow tract gradient. Okay, and if the gradient remains high or the symptom burden remains high, Lynn, uh, is that yep. when you then consider uh, interventional therapy, surgical therapy? Absolutely. So if a patient has what we call medically refractory symptoms, so despite optimal tolerated doses and the gradient is still over 50 millimeters of mercury across the outflow tract, then we start to consider invasive septal reduction. So that takes one of two forms. That can be a surgical myectomy, where the surgeon essentially goes in through a transaortic route. So they open the aorta, they look down through the aortic valve, retract the leaflets, and then essentially shave off the area of thickened muscle in the basal ventricular septum. Um, and that causes immediate relief of outflow tract obstruction. The beauty of surgery is it can be combined with, with um, coronary artery bypass grafting. If the patient has coronary disease, it can be combined with mitral valve surgery if necessary, because actually uh, a significant proportion of patients with HOCAM also have abnormalities of the mitral valve. Yeah. So yeah. that's a surgical procedure. Um, the alternative is alcohol septal ablation, which is an angiographic-based procedure where you're relying on uh, the septal perforator anatomy coming off of the LAD. So you identify the septal perforator vessel, which supplies the thickened basal septum. You know you're in the right spot because you put some echo contrast down the, down the vessel and you take some echo pictures and make sure that it's the basal septum that's lighting up. Um, and then you can inject alcohol into the muscle and essentially you immediately get hypokinesis of the basal septum. And we typically see significant regret, uh, reduction in the gradients, even in the cath lab. Wow. And then over time you get some thinning and scarring down of the basal septum. So you there, then increase the cross-sectional area of the LVOT. And that's also a very, very effective treatment. So most um, specialist cardiomyopathy programs will offer both treatments. And how do you decide, Lynn? Is it is it simply when you've got 
bypass grafting to do or mitral valve work to do that you'll give surgery and you'll have uh, septal ablation as your as your first line or how do you how do you tend to choose so essentially it's very much driven by the anatomy so alcohol septal ablation is very good if you've got discrete basal septal hypertrophy if your mitral valve is otherwise normal um you yeah. know you it, it then it becomes a, a good option if they don't need any attention to the mitral valve. You know, if there's coronary disease, if it's uh, amenable to percutaneous intervention, then fine, you can do it that way as well. Surgery um, tends to be for the patients with thicker sept, uh, septum. If their hypertrophy extends more towards the mid cavity, you can obviously get much further down with a surgical resection. If you've got mitral valve disease, um, also, in some of the younger patients, you know, we often will err towards surgery. Mm. There was this theoretical risk that with alcohol septal ablation, you are causing myocardial scar. Yeah, that's, potentially yeah. that's a long-term arrhythmic risk. Um, there is a slightly higher risk of needing a pacemaker after an alcohol ablation because you are injecting alcohol into the basal septum and then that may well get the conduction system of the heart. So we always have a temporary wire in place when we do an alcohol ablation and we leave it in for at least 24 hours um, to in case there has been damage to the conducting system. But age is important. You know, if you read the guidelines, doing alcohol ablation in younger patients, probably not the best idea because of this potential long-term arrhythmic risk. Um, but again, it, it's it's a case-by-case -case decision. And when we're considering one of these procedures, we sit in the MDT with our interventional cardiologist, with our surgeons, and we tease through the anatomy. And we say, you know, if we think that this is reasonable for an alcohol ablation, then you know, for a lot of patients, that is their preference. Yeah, sure. And we do and we do take patient preference into account. But if we think that they are clearly better served by one procedure or the other, then I would have to say that most patients are very happy to just go along with with the feeling of the group. And just finally, Lynn, are there any new therapies on the horizon for Hokum that you're aware of? Yeah, so it's, it's been a long time coming. And um, over the last few years, I think there have been some trials of some new drugs. And obviously, everyone will be aware of Mavicamton in the Explorer HCM trial that was recently presented at ESC. But just to mention one other drug before I talk about Mavicamton, and that was looking at um, using ranolazine. Okay. Uh, so the late, late sodium channel blocker. And there was a trial a few years ago called Restyle HCM. And essentially, in, in hokum cardiomyocytes, they have a delayed action potential. They have early and late depolarizations, and they have abnormal calcium handling. And it was felt that ranolazine, by targeting uh, this, may actually lead to an improvement in exercise capacity and symptoms and diastolic function and potentially arrhythmia. And so they did a trial in non-obstructive hokum patients. And unfortunately, no benefit in exercise capacity and diastolic function, but it, it did show a reduction in the burden of ventricular ectopy. So that was slightly disappointing, but obviously we're now in the realms of Mavicamton, which is a first-in-class drug that actually acts on cardiac myosin and inhibits cardiac myosin. So essentially, it's a negative inotrope. So it works in a 
not the same mechanism of action as disapyramide, but the same concept. If you if you um, reduce LV contractility, you can improve LVOT obstruction. And it, and it was a, a very promising trial. Uh, there were a lot of patients showed a reduction in symptoms and improvement in exercise capacity using VO2 max. Um, so this is all, you know, exciting. This is the first trial, uh, first trial we've had in some time that's shown positive results. I think one word of caution is that there were some patients who actually developed quite significant LV dysfunction with Mavacamton, so their EF dropped below 50%. Okay. Um, and in mm. Hokum, an EF below 50% is significant. That's often the threshold that we will use for, for heart failure therapy for considering transplant assessment. So it's, it's a very different threshold to other cardiomyopathies. And, you know, this was patients rece receiving um, treatment only for a fairly short period of time with very intensive monitoring. So I think the initial results are exciting. There is a planned study with, with long-term follow-up with regard safety and incidence of LV dysfunction. So that will, that will undoubtedly give us um, more information. And obviously, we won't be able to monitor the patients quite as intensively as they were during the trial. So whether the, how this will translate to real-world clinical settings, I think, is yet to be determined. But it is it is very exciting. It's another drug that we can use to potentially delay the need for in invasive septal reduction therapy or potentially avoid it altogether. Now, just before I let you go, Lynn, you, you briefly alluded to heart failure therapies and, and transplantation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How big a, a transplantation program is there for this disease? Is it, is it a common um, a common cause for heart transplantation, let's say, in the UK? No, but certainly here at Papworth, you know, we uh, we do take quite a few referrals for transplant in Hokum patients from some of the London hospitals, from myself. In terms of the Hokum population, the, the percentage who will develop end-stage systolic heart failure is relatively small, Okay. Um, anywhere between 5 to 10%. Um, but generally, I think that the important thing for people to realize is that an EF below 50% is significantly impaired in a Hokum patient. So you shouldn't be thinking about your normal cutoffs for advanced heart failure therapy in terms of ejection fraction, less than 50 rising pulmonary pressures. I tend to, to refer my patients to the transplant team very early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because if, you know, a lot of these patients by nature of the anatomy of their ventricles are not candidates for mechanical support in terms of LVAD. So you really, you know, if they're going to need transplant, you want to refer them early, get them on the list. Yeah, because um, there aren't many other options, as you say. There aren't many other options. So, so we tend to, you know, and the thing is, once the pulmonary pressures have gone up, particularly if they have a restrictive physiology you may have missed the boat so yeah we yeah. tend we tend to think about it very early we jump in with intensive heart failure therapy very early um and you can do because when their ef has started to decline they usually haven't got obstructive uh features yes so we we jump in very aggressively with heart failure therapy and then consider referral and as um, a as a tertiary cardiologist as an expert in hcm which uh, groups of patients with that disease would you like to see from general cardiologists? Do you want to see anybody where there's doubt in the diagnosis, people with advanced disease, or how do you 
what would your ideal setup be? Sure. If you read the guidelines, you know, ideally in, a, in, in an ideal world, we'd, we'd see everyone at least once with the diagnosis to make yeah. sure that one, the diagnosis is secure and that this isn't a mimic of HCM. Um, to make sure that genetic testing has been at least discussed or offered, that family screening advice, pregnancy counselling, all of that is done, you know, athleticism and activity. You know, if we see them once at diagnosis, then all of that is covered. And Mm. then there are patients, I think, who can go back to follow up. The ones who really do need to be seen in a specialist centre is, you know, to reiterate, if there's any doubt that this might be another diagnosis, there are any red flags in the history or the imaging. I think patients who are high risk of sudden death absolutely need to be referred and the ESC risk calculator is a good screening tool for that. Patients with symptoms, despite meta, you know, despite beta blocker therapy who may need a surgery or an alcohol ablation absolutely need to come and see us. And those procedures should only be done in high volume centers. The results are suboptimal if people dabble in them. So it needs to be done somewhere where you've got the whole team. And then, you know, if the EF starting to drop, they need to come and see us and be aggressively treated and worked up. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, Lynn. It's been a, a real tour de force through, uh, through HCM. Great. It was my pleasure.